Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode was recorded on Thursday, September 24, 2020. And a good evening to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the podcast. And this evening, we're talking with Dr. Jennifer McCoy, a political science professor at Georgia State University. Dr. McCoy served as director of the Carter Center's Americas program from 1998 to 2015, leading projects on democratic strengthening, mediation and dialogue, and hemispheric cooperation. She is a specialist on democratization and polarization, mediation and conflict prevention, election processes and election observation, and Latin American politics. She has authored or edited numerous books on and dozens of articles. Her latest volume is Polarizing Polities, A Global Threat to Democracy, co-edited with Murat Sommer. She teaches courses on democratic erosion, comparative democratization, international norms, and Latin American politics. Okay, so that sounds like a lot, but um, today we're going we're gonna to focus on Dr. McCoy's current research project on polarized democracies, where she seeks to determine the causes, consequences, and solutions to polarized societies around the world, including right here in the United States. She is currently working on the micro-foundations of severe polarization and democratic erosion. In particular, she is researching possible antidotes to the decreasing support for democracy caused by the us-versus-them polarizing strategies of populist political leaders. The Alliance Party After Dark would like to emphasize that the views Dr. Jennifer McCoy expresses are hers based on her experiences and not that of any entity or organization with which she may be affiliated. Dr. McCoy, welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, and thank you for joining us this evening. Oh, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Great. Well, you know, I saw some of your tweets online, and that's what initially you know, piqued my interest and, and got me lo- looking at more of the things that you've written online. And I have to admit, it does take me a while to work through your articles. Um, they are fairly ac- academic, and it, they, pre- they presuppose that I'm familiar with a lot of the inner workings of politics not only in the U.S., but in different nations as well. But anyways, for me, the effort is worth it because I find that as I begin to understand each paragraph, I start drawing analogies to my own political experiences, and then and then I start to think about things in a whole different light. And so what I find most interesting about your writings are in the topic of polarization. Your writings, they've reinforced a lot of my own thoughts on this topic, but um, obviously, you go much further and, and, and get me to the point of thinking about things even deeper. Um, and so I thought it would be interesting to spend a few minutes with you and learn more. And so you're basically making a student out of me. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> so uh, let's start off here. Um, back in January 2019, um, you wrote a paper called Toward a Theory of Pernicious Polarization and how it harms democracies, comparative evidence, and possible remedies. Um, It did a lot to answer my questions regarding the roots of polarization, um, and you cited three primary types of grievances that are at the root of polarization, and this really hit home with me, and these grievances are based on um, political, economic, and cultural motivations. So could you digress into this topic a bit, uh, into these three classifications of grievances and, and how they're driving polarization in our country? Um, sure. Well, what we found, we did a, a study of countries around the world, uh, looking at nearly a dozen countries to see were there any patterns 
um, in how the polarizations that we saw in each of those countries uh, evolved, what were the roots of them, and how did they develop, and then what happened, what were the consequences uh, of them. And so what we usually found is that there, there usually are some grievances. So it could come from um, income inequality, uh, you know, big gaps, or uh, an economic crisis that's led to a lot of economic anxiety, uh, unemployment. Uh, it could come from um, political uh, feelings of being excluded uh, from political decision-making. It could come from uh, uh, the cultural aspect would be a, more of a cultural group, a religious group, mm -hmm. um, a group of, for example, around sexual orientation, feeling excluded uh, or discriminated against. So there could be some kind of grievance. Uh, usually there are in divisions, uh, divisions within a society. Mm -hmm. But then what we found is that the polarization that develops into what we call pernicious polarization where a society becomes really divided into an us versus them. So there's a hostility there between groups, a distrust, a dislike between the groups. Mm -hmm. And that level of polarization, of division and antipathy is usually driven by a political actor, a political entrepreneur, or any, any kind of a, a, a political leader or wannabe leader or a group, or it could be a movement even, uh, who looks at those grievances and exploits them and really emphasizes them and seeks to further divide the society in order to gain politically, to win an election, for example. And what we learned is that polarization, um, polarizing is really a winning electoral strategy. And politicians know this, that you have to, if you're running for election, you have to distinguish yourself from the other guy. And political parties try to do this. Um, but you can do that in a constructive way, or you can do it in a more de destructive way. And so a polarizing strategy is really kind of emphasizing the negatives about the other side and painting them as enemies or identifying a, an enemy from somewhere, maybe a foreign enemy even, in order to paint themselves as the savior for the country or the, you know, the positive, we're the ones that are gonna be able to fix the problems. I alone can fix it sort of thing, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, um, do you think that, um, and, and I don't mean to interrupt here, but it, it, I'm just jumping on this uh, political aspect of, of, the, of the differentiation, um, in this country, in the United States, we have this plurality voting mechanism. And um, I was going to kind of save this topic for later, but now that we're here, um, the, 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 the thing about the voting system in the United States is that you can have, say, 10 candidates running for an office. Each one gets 10% of the vote, of the vote, but one guy gets one more vote than that. So, um, and then he wins, right? He wins with 10% of the vote, but it usually doesn't work out that way. It usually comes down to just two parties. And do you think that 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 um, plurality type of voting mechanism might enhance the, um, the polarization, particularly the political polarization? Yes, we found that in fact it does. And what we call majoritarian systems, which is um, electoral systems that 
uh, are either plurality or sometimes it's a, a majority, so it'll take a runoff. So for example, my state of Georgia has a requirement that you have to have 50 plus 1% to win. Mm. And so that usually does take a runoff, in fact, or often does take a runoff. Uh, but a plurality, just whoever gets the most uh, in a plurality system, but it, it w has the same effect because what it means is that each district is represented by only one person. So we call them single member districts. And that contrast with a system that is used widely in Europe, um, in many countries in Latin America as well. So other parts of the world, all around the world, that is called proportional representation. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, you have in a single district, you'll have multiple candidates running. And so that gives other voices, other points of view, a chance to be represented because each party who, who runs, whatever percent of the vote they get in that district, they'll get that percent of the seats. Mm -hmm. And so the smaller party or a new party or an independent party could come up and maybe they will get 10%. The others might get 40 and 50%, but they might still get um, a seat. In our system uh, with a single member district, that's very rarely possible. And so it comes down to a two-party system. Yeah. So how does that contribute to polarization? Well, it becomes much more of a winner-take-all kind of system. And so one party is representing First of all, only one uh, person may be representing an entire district that is maybe very close, uh, half and half almost, uh, of people, but half the people may not feel represented. Or in a state, one party can uh, win, you know, can totally dominate a mm -hmm. state government, the legislature, both houses of the legislature and the governor or at the national level. We've had you know, different points in time, um, the beginning of the Trump administration, the beginning of the Obama administration, when one party controlled all of the branches of government. And that means when they do, if they decide to basically make decisions unilaterally without consulting the minority party or parties, then many people will feel left out. They'll feel excluded and they'll feel like uh, this is a winner-take-all system, and it becomes we, we begin to have a zero-sum view of the world, which is if you're winning, I'm losing. Right. And so that engenders distrust and suspicion. And eventually, if that continues, and one party continues to dominate and to kind of make decisions unilaterally and impose their views, um, all the time, then uh, the the other um, parties or the, the people who don't feel represented may begin to fear that their whole way of life may be threatened. Mm -hmm. Now, it, it, it's interesting because you, you say in a democracy, the majority should, you know, the majority rules. Whoever wins the majority should win. And that is true. But Again, if it becomes this system where only one party gets to make all the decisions, and particularly if it gets repeated from election to election, as we've seen in some countries, uh, one party can stay in for 20 years, then the other people in the other parties really begin to get this sense 
of never being represented. And that leads to what we call a crisis of representation. Yeah. You know, and I think in this country, too, I've had a lot of conversations with people from Fair Vote, and I think it's even worse in a sense than, than perhaps what you're describing there, because what happens in our country now, since the districts are so, most of the districts are so gerrymandered, that it only really, essentially, you only have to win the primary, right? And and in the primary, you can you can squeak by with just uh, a few votes, and as long as you win that primary, you're almost uh, guaranteed, you know, 80, 90%. I mean, the, most of these districts are no longer competitive, so you win the primary, and now you're you're in, right? And so you can you can theoretically get in with less than fifty percent support from the people, simply because oh, it's been gerrymandered. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely, and that that's a real problem um, in this country. And and so because so few seats are actually competitive, then you're right. So one district can have just the same party running over and over and over. Um, and and maybe even uncontested, no no challenger at all from the other party. But it's even worse in terms of polarization because as we have divided in, in the United States, what's happened? One of the roots of it is that people have sorted into the Republican and the Democratic Party along other kinds of identities. Those mm-hmm. identities may be their religious identity and their religious views. It may be racial and ethnic. It may be um, other cultural aspects. Uh, it may be economic, but they've uh, it, it's it's greatly geographic. So that rural people have sorted much more into the Republican Party. Um, Christian evangelicals have sorted into the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Uh, racial minorities have tended to sort into the Democrat Democratic Party. Uh, urban people, people living in the cities, um, professionals living in the cities as well. And so the parties become very homogeneous among themselves. That didn't used to be the case. Mm -hmm. It used to be that, you know, Christian evangelicals were divided between the parties. Uh, Rural um, populations were divided between the parties, urban populations. So this has happened over the last 30 years. And so as the parties become sorted, and as we have these gerrymandered districts that are um, uncompetitive, then the people who vote in the primaries to choose the candidate of that party that's already dominating mm-hmm. are the most partisan people. That is the people who are most active. They're the activists in their parties who yeah. are the ones who are gonna vote in the primary. And they often tend to be kind of the more, the more purest of the party. Mm-hmm. So more on the extreme. And so we have this centrifugal push. The parties are growing apart in, in part because of gerrymandering and the primary system that we depend on. Mm-hmm. And so that actually means, and now we have you know the threat of being primaried. So politicians are worried not about the competitor from the other party, they're worried about being primaried if they're not sufficiently towing the party line or what a movement within the party wants them to be. Usually if they're not sufficiently conservative on the Republican side or progressive on the Democratic side, somebody will challenge them from further apart, further to the right or further to the left. And so the whole system becomes even more polarized. And then more difficult to make decisions and our government becomes completely dysfunctional 
unable to make decisions to solve the problems for the people. That's interesting because, you know, last last week we talked with Jen Perlman and she ran um, in, her, in the primary against uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz uh, in Florida's, I think it's the 23rd or 24th district. I don't remember. It uh, escapes me at this point. And we had a very similar discussion to this. And what I asked her was, um, was was this was this phenomenon of getting primary? Because I said, you know, when when a lot of politicians or a lot of uh, Congress people when they go into Congress, there's expectations of them to do certain things in a certain way. They must vote consistent with the party, and they must dial for dollars and spend, you know, probably fifty percent of their time dialing for dollars trying to get the big money to come in. And if they don't play that game, they get primaried out. And 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 Jen's take on that was. Um, was that some people aren't playing that game, like AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez apparently does not play that game. And she says you need to get enough people in there that won't play that game to do that. But I I think that's you're taking on a pretty big fight right there because, you know, the, the Democrat, Democratic Party, the Republican Party, these are multi-billion dollar industries, basically, and they wield a lot of power. And if they don't want you in there, um, if you're not playing the game, uh, I think you're right. They will primary you right out of that position, and it yeah, just gets turned not, over. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily the party who's primarying them. It's movements within the party. So AOC is a perfect example. She was the primaried. She was primarying out yeah. her competitor, you know, yeah. a long, long-time uh, congressman, and from the left, from further to the left. So she was, she was being that mm-hmm. okay. you know, kind of. Um, instigator in that sense. And, you know, she relies on, on grassroots um, donations and she's, you know, very popular in that sense. So, you know, she, 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 she can raise money. She does raise money, but not in the traditional sense. Hmm. Well, that's, that's interesting then. So then the, I, I suppose then what, what you're saying is that people within your own district, the, uh, the extreme, pardon the expression extremist, but I mean, perhaps you, purist is a better word that you use there. They're the ones that actually wield the power that will, that will primary you, using that as a verb, I guess, that will primary you out of your position then. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So it's not, it's not usually the party establishment that's doing that. Usually they're trying to defend the incumbent. Uh, you know, unless they're unhappy with the incumbent for some reason, but usually they're trying to defend the incumbent. And then it'll be like, you know, originally it was uh, from the Tea Party in the uh, in the Republican base. Uh, now it's from, you know, the groups, for example, that followed Bernie Sanders after the after the prior election, after mm-hmm. the 2016 election, and then formed a movement to try to elect uh, progressives who would then talk people into running against uh, more centrist incumbent Democrats. So, yeah, it's it, it's a lot of movement politics um, wow. that, that is causing this. And I said, and it's the people who are the most, you know, activist and often the most kind of purist in their in their dogma. Okay. So I want to jump on something you said earlier too. You talked about um, uh, polarization being used in, I believe, the words you used were constructive way. Um, and that, that lines up with with the, some of the writing I've been or some of the stuff I've been reading from you. Um, I could you explain that a little bit more because I'm not so sure that uh, at least I have to be convinced now that that polarization isn't always a bad thing because you know I think as you were trying to say when you use it in a constructive way it can help a party differentiate itself and sell itself to its people, but. The thing that I don't uh, I have trouble with is that um, uh, 
the power of polarization can make bad actors drunk on power, right? They, um, I think perhaps a majority of people, given a reasonable amount of power, will handle power reasonably, but there are always those bad actors out there. And so how do you keep polarization that's being used in a constructive way, as you mentioned, how do you keep that from becoming a destructive sort of force? Exactly. Well, that's really, you know, the million dollar question. And because democratic politics requires competition and competition requires distinguishing yourself. And that's the role of political parties to have some kind of an identity, a program, uh, a vision that they can sell to voters and say, vote for us because this is what we'll offer you. Mm -hmm. Um, That level of difference is, is good, is healthy in a democracy and it helps voters, you know, make choices. Um, The kind of polarization that we're talking about is when we see a process where voters increasingly do this sorting into parties or parties are um, pulling the voters in based on specific identities and based on appeals that are often emotional appeals and appealing to those grievances or fears and anxieties or resentments and anger. And when that happens, then you get this more tribal kind of uh, uh, polarization Mm -hmm. that, or division where people are bonding with their own Mm in-group, but viewing the out-group as um, in, in a negative way where they stereotype um, have have biases against them, make assumptions about the outgroup that aren't necessarily um, accurate. And there's lots of research about this. So this kind of intergroup conflict is what we see in this us versus them when we get to this tribalistic level mm-hmm. of division and using a strategy, a political strategy that that uses these kinds of appeals where you're actually identifying us, we're the good people, and them, those are the enemies, Mm -hmm. those are the bad people. And when you hear that kind of language of us versus them, that's the first warning sign. Mm -hmm. And when you hear people talking, so for example, I worked a long time in Venezuela, which was a very extremely polarized society and saw its democracy actually disappear as a result of this process. Hmm. And that's actually where I became more and more concerned about what was happening in the United States. As I watched over the last 20 years, Venezuela just disintegrate, basically. I could see some of the same patterns happening here, yeah. and it, it made me very concerned. Um, but what happens, oh, you know, what I would hear is people talking about, that they wouldn't even say the name of the other group. So in that case, it was either you were pro Hugo Chavez, the leader in Venezuela, or anti-Chavez. So the Chavistas and the anti-Chavistas. They didn't even label them. They would just say them. And everyone knew, all their friends and family and, you know, colleagues knew when somebody said them, who they were talking about. Wow. The other side. So you don't even have to label them. It's just we and them. Um, So so that's the destructive nature of polarization. And like I said, when it gets so bad that the distrust is so strong that they view, people begin to view, if this other side comes to power, it's an existential threat to the nation 
or to my way of life. Yeah. Or the people in power say, we cannot leave power because if the other side gets power, it's an existential threat to us. And that's when we start to see the breakdown of democracy. We see democratic erosion. People are okay with their leaders um, violating democratic norms because this threat is so high. Yeah. So can this happen in the United States? Well, Pew Research Center does a lot of polling. And one of the questions they've asked is, do you, to what extent do you see uh, the other party, they ask this of Republicans and Democrats, as a threat to the nation? To what extent do you see the policies of the, of the other party as a threat to the nation? In 1994, when they started asking this question, the rate was about uh, 16, 17% of each of both the Democrats and Republicans saw the other as a threat to the nation. Mm -hmm. By 2016, that was up to 44 and 47% for the wow. two parties. Wow. And that, and today I'm sure it's even higher. I haven't seen yeah. that they've done any, any more recent polling on that, but so yes, that's yeah. what we're seeing. Now I have done research here, I just did a survey in the United States around the country, 3,000 people. Mm -hmm. And um, we did an experiment where we wanted to find out to what extent are Americans um, willing to violate democratic norms. Now, some of this wouldn't be breaking the law. It mm -hmm. would be, for example, expanding the Supreme Court. Okay. Congress expanded Supreme Court, which is perfectly legal and is actually being talked about now. Yeah. But it would be certainly changing a norm that we've had of nine Supreme Court justices for 100 years. Mm -hmm. In the 19th century, it was changed several times, the number, but not since then. So it, it ranges from that to questions like, should a governor be able to ban protests? which is a big thing today too, talking about the protest, yeah. which would be illegal, which would be unconstitutional because Americans have the right to protest and free speech. Because your second. first amendment, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And questions like, should the president uh, who you know campaigned on a promise to make some policy change, can't get Congress to go along to approve the you know a new law, the policy change, or has a court that you know is saying you can't do this, should the president do it anyway? questions like that. And what we found was that, in fact, uh, between um, 30 to 40 percent of Americans are willing to, you know, support those kinds of changes or violations of our existing democratic norms when their own party is in power. And it's the people who feel the most threatened by the other party who are the most likely to uh, to say that, to support those kinds of changes of norms. My goodness. So yes. That's a lot. We do have this. Yeah. Well, you know, I've, I've, um, I've been around for a while here. Um, I don't, I don't want to say what my exact age is. I'll be really embarrassed, but um, I've watched uh, ever since, um, you know, the, the Carter and Reagan years and, and moving forward. And what I've noticed personally over the years is this polarization started taking place Back in the eighties, I don't know if you remember this whole thing about family values that that was uh, yes. underneath uh, George Bush Senior, I believe. They started pushing this thing called family values, and it turned into flag burning. It turned into you know, 
what I consider to be sort of nebulous things, but things that also that aren't so nebulous, like perhaps um, you know gun control or or abortion or 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 um, nowadays I think the post office is being used. These are I, I the opinion I have is that these are issues that are invented in order to sort uh, the population, right? So if you buy into the Republican Party, you're going to fall this way on those issues. If you buy into the Democratic Party, you're going to fall that way in the issues. And it's continuous process that this has been going on for years now. Oh, yes. Yes, definitely. It's, it's definitely been going on since the 1980s. And, you know, it was part of the in the U.S., it was part of this big realignment of the parties but that actually started with Nixon and this what they called the Southern strategy for the, yeah. the Republicans to be able to come in and make it inroads into the South, which had been pretty dominated by the Democratic Party um, for decades. And so it, it happened after the civil rights um, legislation was passed in the 1960s. And there were a number of of Democrats in the South who were not happy with that legislation mm -hmm. and the Voting Rights Act and the civil rights legislation giving more protections to African-Americans. Um, and so the Republican Party made inroads with those Democrats who were unhappy um, with that, with the, with the Democratic National Party for that legislation. And so that began, you know, actually in the 1970s. And then with Ronald Reagan, he made real appeals to um, Christian evangelicals mm -hmm. and changed his party's position actually on abortion. Uh, Cause there had been, you know, really broad bipartisan support for a woman's right to, to choose. To choose mm -hmm. And, um, and, and, and pretty broad support within the country. But then the party, the Republican party started taking um, uh, a, a stricter stand on, on abortion in part for its appeal to Christian evangelicals. And so, yes, we began to see this sorting based on, on issues. Wow. It, it's interesting is that I, um, a few, a uh, couple months back, I, I talked with uh, one of the guys or with a, with a, our guest on the podcast was a, was a guy named Scott Fawn, who is a uh, publisher of the Missouri Times, a fairly conservative newspaper here. And it was very interesting to talk with him. And uh, just to give you kind of a, an example, how this tribalism and polarization really works against people. Uh, he had this observation that said, uh, when it comes to universal health care or and or Medicare for all, he says, the people that benefit from it the most here in Missouri anyways, are uh, the people in the rural areas. Uh, and the people who benefit from it the least are the people in the in the urban areas. Now he says, how do you think people are going to how, how do you think people are voting these days? He says the rural area people are actually against health care for all, uh, the universal health care. And the city people are actually for it. It's just the opposite. And it just speaks to me how strong tribalism can go in in this sense anyways, that it actually works against your own best interest. It's, it's more important to be identified with the tribe uh, than it is to, um, to actually act in your own best interest. Yeah, that's exactly right. The tribal identity becomes very important and people's views on issues can change to kind of match that tribal identity or the cues that they're getting from the party leaders, even as it changes. So you think about the Republican Party, you know, it was for many years, the free trade party. And yet Donald Trump came in and completely changed that position yeah. to a much more protectionist 
um, nationalist uh, point of view. And the Republican supporters and other Repu- other Republican politicians, you know, just went along. So um, I, 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 we're getting kind of toward the end of our discussion here, but um, I wanted to uh, end possibly on a high note here. You, you also, one of the things I mentioned in your in the introduction here is that you're also working on remedies, uh, some ideas that you have. Um, one of the ideas I read that you, I think you tweeted this out actually a couple of days ago. You said that preserving the court's legitimacy is key to preserving democracy. And you cited a Boston Globe article from back in July where the concept of limited terms for justices was proposed, um, Supreme Court justices in this case. And, and the Boston Globe article actually showed how you can do this kind of without actually you know, going in violation of Article 3. Um, so, uh, would you like, would you care to talk about some of the remedies that you've been looking at? Yeah, some of them are institutional like that. So, as I said, the, the winner take all perception is what really creates, um, the problem because people feel like, you know, if they're not on the winning side, they're just really losing out or they're afraid to, to, for, to, to no longer be on the winning side. Um, you know, if they were to lose power. So, the key, I think, is to give some level of reassurance to all people that they will have some, you know, some basic rights protected, of course, mm-hmm. but also some ability to participate, not only to win in the future, but to make sure that there is the chance to win in the future, but also to participate in decision making along the way. So one of the things, you know, the Supreme Court has become very politicized uh, over time matching our polarization so the nominations and one of the problems is in fact you know now we have these like we've always had lifetime appointments but now people are living quite long you know they can be Mm -hmm. healthy for quite a long time and so a supreme court appointment takes on the stakes are much higher now because they're not going to change very often so i like this idea of term limits we are i think the only or one of one of the very few countries in the world and certainly of established democracies that have lifetime appointments mm-hmm. most countries have term limits whether it's 18 years 25 years uh some only 12 years but i like the 18 year proposal um where uh that would give actually each president a chance so they're rotating off that give each president a chance to name them it would lower the stakes and the, the high, you know, fighting over mm-hmm. each Supreme Court justice. Another thing I like is uh, ranked choice voting. And so uh, if we if we follow that, it would get rid of this primary problem that we have that is this centrifugal push apart of the parties mm-hmm. by allowing people to um, uh, to vote for their top, you know, like three choices. And then as, so you count the votes and the first person who doesn't get it, um, doesn't get the the majority, then you go to people's second choices and add them uh, to the the first. And it gives, it, it will reduce polarization by allowing people to, um, have a, 
um, their, maybe their second choice come in, it may, means that politicians won't be able to talk so negatively, which is part of the polarization problem about the other side, discrediting, you know, calling the other side, you know, traitors or unpatriotic or discrediting them, the legitimacy of, it, of, of the other people. It would avoid that. And it, can, and it could also allow for more voices to come in. It could, have, it could allow for new parties to form. So, so I really like that as a, as, a, as a solution as well. Yeah. You talked about single representation districts, too. And one of the things that is starting to make inroads into our political system these days, from what I understand, the state of Washington, and I think maybe the state of California in their state legislatures actually have multi-representation districts. Um, this is, if you combine that with ranked choice voting, then you have, um, uh, you have the best of both worlds, I would think. You have people who exactly. are going to get representation mm-hmm. and people who aren't afraid of voting against someone. They can they vote for the person they want and then, okay, make someone else their second choice. So, yeah. Um, good. Yes, exactly. No, I, I agree with that. And this is part of the problem of polarization, too, is this the negative partisanship where people are actually voting more against somebody than for somebody they like. Yeah. But that's motivation. Yeah. And, and, and just a, one more kind of institutional thing is our electoral college, again, we're, you know, very unusual in the world of presidential systems that we don't actually directly elect our president. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I do view the electoral college as a relic coming from, from our past, but at least even if we don't change it, which would require constitutional amendment, at least having the state's uh, designate their electors on the basis of proportional representation. Yeah. So again, we don't have this winner take all. Um, so that even if the even if the vote is fifty one to forty nine for for two different presidential candidates, that state most of our states will send one hundred percent of their electoral votes for for the, the candidate yeah. about fifty one percent. And so I, I think that would allow people to feel more represented. Yeah. Well, I agree. And I think it would stop these situations or at least mitigate the situations where you have a majority that votes for one person, but the other person still wins because they managed to finagle out the uh, the electoral college. So exactly. Yeah, that's an issue. Okay. And um, yeah, and, and I'm seeing, uh, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of too, like some states, I think Maine has actually implemented ranked choice voting. And um, yes. is that going to, yes. is that going to be used in the, in this election for the, um, for the Senate as well? Cause I was just wondering how that's going to work out for Susan Collins. That's a very good question. I'm, I'm not really sure. Yeah. I'd be very interested to see how that works out because um, I think yeah. it, it's that's a good uh, a good role model for other states to follow, and um, of course there's organizations like Fair Vote who advocate for these types of concepts as well as I believe Represent Us, um, yes. probably a dozen other uh, organizations out there doing the same thing. Wonderful. Yes. So uh, yeah, so we're we're leaving on a on a fairly high note. Do you have some remedies? Do you have any other remedies you'd like to talk about before we wrap this up? Well, I will just say, I, I, I do think that on the personal level, um, respecting our fellow citizens is, is really important and trying to avoid and don't vote for people who are tearing down the opposition, who are denigrating the opposition or talking about enemies all the time. Um, voters can do that and they can try to respect each other, even while disagreeing you know, violently on the ideas. 
um, some of the things that I tried, and it's, it's very hard, some of the psychological mechanisms to try to reduce the animus that we feel toward each other is, yeah. is very hard. It's a long-term process, and I think it's going to take breaking down our barriers so that we can begin to work together on projects to achieve something positive together. For example, even local, pro you know, building a new park or something in a city. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's it's going to take, you know, getting us back to even starting to talk to each other at the, at the individual and personal level. Yeah. That's kind of hard to do though. I mean, you have to really, uh, I'm not saying it's impossible, but you have, um, you're fighting a lot of, uh, popular media outlets at this point, you know, obviously Fox yeah. news on one side, uh, I mean, CNN has become quite slanted as well on the other side. And so you have, um, it's really, I don't know, these guys, they have to sell their advertising dollars, right. And, and fear sells, um, unfortunately. So yeah, social media, Facebook, all of this is, is, it's just really feeding into our polarization. It's not helping yeah. overcome it at all. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's going to be a tough fight, but it's a fight well worth having, I believe. I tell you one yes. thing, one thing that's get that's giving me, um, uh, hope for the future as well is that, um, the younger generation, if you see these protest marches out there, uh, particularly black lives matter, you know, it, it years ago it was, it was mostly just black people that you saw out there, but now you're seeing lots of mixed people and they're all young too. Right. And they're all, they're all, um, it's a very mixed group of people out there that are protesting. Um, gives, it gives yeah. me a lot of hope. Oh, definitely. And it, and it, and it comes on, on, I think three issues that have divided the country, but it goes back to, this is another one of our concepts, um, that polarization that is around unresolved debates from a nation's founding that have to do with citizenship and national identity. Mm -hmm. If we're polarizing around those issues, it is the most entrenched and the most pernicious. And for the United States, those issues are racial, religion, and ideology. And so right now what we're seeing is young people are willing to overcome those um, divides over who is really an American citizen, who has the right to be an American citizen, when we had, of course, African slaves, uh, women, and Native Americans excluded from the beginning. Yeah. And that and now, you know, the next generation is is basically saying, oh, that's, you know, None of those things matter yeah. to a large degree. So that that's a very positive sign. Yeah, yeah, it, it uh, makes me very hopeful. Okay, we've been talking with Dr. Jennifer McCoy, a political science professor at Georgia State University. She is a specialist on democratization and polarization, and she has stopped by this evening to talk with us about the effects of polarization on American politics and what we can do to help make things better. Uh, Dr. McCoy, I want to thank you very much for stopping in and chatting with us this evening. Well, thanks very much for the invitation. And thank you for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any episodes. Each week, we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You may subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. Also, keep in mind that the podcast has a Twitter page at Alliance On Air. And if you have any suggestions for future topics or people we might want to interview in a future podcast, please drop us an email at podcast at theallianceparty.com. All content for this podcast is copyright The Alliance Party. 
Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. This podcast is a production of the Alliance Party, a decades-long movement of fiscally conservative, moderate, accountable, and reasoned independents, former Democrats, former Republicans, and alienated voters who demand that our elected officials work in the spirit of nonpartisanship for all constituents and provide a better future for our country. This podcast was made possible by your donations to the Alliance Party. If you'd like to join the Alliance Party, visit our website at theallianceparty.com. Drop in, see what we're all about, and get involved. Volunteer your time, make a donation, submit an article or blog, or run for office. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the Alliance Party After Dark, and on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe, be aware, and please take care of yourself and those around you.